0: Welcome to Everyday Holiness, a faith-indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and we're pleased to have you with us. I'm also pleased to be joined this week by my guest, Sister Idalquin Shivachi, who is a religious sister of the Little Sisters of St. Francis of Assisi, and Sister Idalquin is actually from Kenya, and is a doctoral student studying theology here at Notre Dame. So, Sister Delquin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me.
0: And obviously, in this time of coronavirus, the pandemic, Sister, although she is a student on campus, is joining me remotely here, so we appreciate her efforts there and your patience with that. Sister, if you could... Introduce yourself a little bit more to the audience, where you come from, and your background, if you would, please.
1: Thank you so much, Dan, and uh, thank you for having me, actually. It's a great honor that you have shown me. You have actually well spelled my name. Few people do that. I am the state Queen Shivachi and i come from kenya uh, i am a franciscan in the order of the little sisters of saint francis i am here studying my phd in theology in the area of world religions world church which means a, I am doing a um, phd in world church because world religions world church are two tracks so when you come in you either take the track of world religions or world church so i am taking world church and i'm specializing in christianity in africa christianity in the world anything uh, historical about christianity I intend to do my dissertation on how we can return to the scriptural command of taking care of the environment, and specifically, I wish to study the Green Belt Movement in Kenya.
0: Okay, thank you very much for that background. Where in Kenya did you grow up, and what was your upbringing like?
1: Yeah, I grew up in the western part of Kenya specifically the county of Kakamega. But by then, uh, they were not called counties, actually. They were just districts and and provinces and, and all that. But I grew up in a remote village called Lirembe. I went to a school close by. I could just walk to school and come back home in the evening. I grew up there. I was born in... A family of seven. Uh, we are two boys and we are five girls. I am the first girl and I am in the middle of the two boys. So, after the boy that follows me, the rest are, are females.
0: That's very helpful. And in terms of your education as a young person, can you give us a sense of the educational system and what you were passionate about? as a young person as a young student
1: yeah the education system it used to run from uh, early childhood which would take like two years and then primary one to three and then we have middle which would be like four to six and then seven to eight so i Mm -hmm. took like about nine years in primary school and i performed very well and i went to as high school called Butere Girls High School and that time it was so famous. In fact, if you are called to Butere Girls, you are among the smartest ladies in the in the country.
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Very exciting, yeah. Kinda but, like Notre Dame can be in higher education yes, in the States, definitely. I suppose. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so so uh, so so when I was growing up, actually, there, there's something that really interested me, and that is, you know, becoming a nun. Actually,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I remember when I was in standard seven, uh, grade seven, we went to church. We we used, we used to go to church, the Catholic church. I was born Catholic and raised Catholic. So this Sunday we had gone to church, and. We had quite a number of nuns who had come to church that day,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so the, the priest called the nuns uh, towards the end of mass and told the nuns, "Well, we we would like you to come and greet the Christians and uh, even sort of preach vocation." And that's that's the normal the normal thing in Africa. Like when you have nuns in church, you call them in front just before you conclude mass so that they speak to Christians, encourage young girls. Mm-hmm. So that was the case that time. And when I saw these nuns well-dressed in white and their veils, I was so fascinated by that.
2: Mm.
1: And I told my mom, I want to be like them. Wow. Yeah. So I told her I want to be like these this. My mom was like, well you know, you need to study (laughs) fast. I didn't understand the relationship between being a nun and school, you know. I wanted to be like them. And actually that has been a point of my departure to to being a religious woman. When I went to high school, it sort of got lost because I was not in a Catholic school. Okay. And and after that, it, it came back, why? because I met a nun. Now, this one was not in white. She was in beige, Uh in a beige habit. And I didn't know she was a Franciscan. I only knew she was Franciscan when I got into the the order. So I asked her, how can I be like you? And she told well, you need to apply, you need to have passed your exams, you need to go for a conference. And when they... They interview you. They look at you, the way you behave, the way you relate with others, the way you pray. Then they will admit you into the order. And to cut the long story short, that's what happened.
0: Thank you. That's very informative for us. You mentioned that your practice of faith was interwoven throughout your childhood. Were there any other really important moments of faith or people that you looked up to that as you as you think back now, you can say, "Ah, oh, there was the hand of God in those experiences or people."
1: Yeah, absolutely. Back home, we have what we call the small Christian communities. So these are communities of faith. Mm-hmm. Apart from going to mass, these communities meet in homes, like uh, on a weekly basis. So in my small Christian community, we had uh, quite a number of senior ladies and gentlemen who would come to our house and pray. And they would mention my name and say, this one, we're praying that God, you may help her to become a nun.
2: Wow.
1: So so they they really put some interest in me of becoming a nun.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And we also had uh, another group uh, called the Legion of Mary. The Legion of Mary was brought to Africa by a, a lady called Idel Queen. What a great honor. Yeah. <laughs> she was from Ireland. So she came to Africa and, and introduced the Legion of Mary. So I was one of those groups. And in those groups, we had several speakers, priests, we had married couples who would come and encourage us to pray the rosary. Um, use sacramentals, you know, like the cross, and to reflect on, on the life of Christ.
0: Mm-hmm. And was Quinn your given name, or was that the name that you took once you entered religious life?
1: That was my given name.
0: Oh, bit of providence there, that, that there was that connection.
1: Yes, my my grandmother was uh, a legionary, and she's the first to, to bring uh, the Legion of Mary in her. Her parish, and so when my mother gave birth to me, she said, Well, we will we, we'll call her Queen, and that's how I got that name. Huh. Yeah, so it's even wonderful that you know I am in an Irish campus. <laughs> <laughs> mother foundress of our order is from Ireland, and my name is from Ireland.
0: Yeah, yeah, oh. no, it's. We, we are partial to all things Irish here at Notre Dame and French as well, of course, with <laughs> yeah. all the French spirituality. Yeah. So for most of our listeners would be coming from an American context, although we're honored that people do join this podcast and listen to it from all over the world. But could you give us a little insight into some of the similarities and differences of of Catholic worship and practice in a Kenyan context, as opposed to what you've seen in your time here in the U.S.
1: Absolutely. So when I came here first, I was I was shocked, and I immediately noted there were differences in mm-hmm. in in the way we worship. Back home, we have during Mass we have a group of like seventy. Men and women as the choir,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we have a very full church such that we do not have pews for other people to sit. So they sit on the floor and all. The, or at times, then the priest has to to go out. I mean, to set mass outside on the, on the grass so that yeah. everyone is is seated and you know is celebrating. So I I kind of miss missed that in in part of uh, this country specifically on a daily mass when we have a single cantor and uh, an organist mm-hmm. uh, which is not the case the case back home that, that, that was a great difference but in terms but also i mean the the way the music is um is kind of different i mean because mm-hmm. of, uh, the two different contexts huh? africa is kind of you know I want to use the word lively" just because I don't have another one, but I mean, sure
0: yeah the energetic energetic kind of yeah. worship that's happening
1: yeah, and even if we have something like a piano, we have accompaniment in terms of clapping, you know dancing, you know swinging, ululations and whistling and m- many other many other kind of accompaniments which are not here.
0: Yeah, <laughs> sometimes it's a little more buttoned up <laughs> yeah. in an American worship context.
1: <laughs> yeah, but that is the greatest difference. But I think the way the liturgy is celebrated, the structure of the Mass, is there is no difference. Uh, by virtue of uh, the Catholic Church being universal, I think yeah. we are same in, in the way uh, the Mass begins and the way it ends. Uh, We uh, we celebrate the sacraments of reconciliation, Eucharist, baptism at Easter. I think those are just same things are celebrated differently in Africa and and here because of the context.
0: Yeah, it's it's often I think one of the greatest gifts of our Catholic faith is that we can go virtually anywhere in the world and find that practice. We may not recognize the language. The music may be different, <laughs> possibly with more energy than we're used to, but the essentials of what is happening is the same, and there is a a true connectedness to, you know, to those all over the world as we, yeah. you know, share in the same Eucharist and, and the sacraments there. Yeah. So you mentioned that during high school, this this calling went dormant a bit. When, what would you say was the moment or moments when it started to reawaken again and then your entry formal application and entry into religious life
1: i must really say that i i was not i didn't study in catholic schools in primary and high school but but i thank god that i was i was catholic and my mother used to to take us to to mass and that's how i think I got my call, other than if I was not going to mass, I wouldn't have seen the lance, of course. Sure. Yeah. But like I said, I, I shared, uh, when I went to high school, my call got lost because we had uh, Anglican services and everyone was expected to attend the Anglican services. Mm-hmm. So after, after high school, which was a boarding school actually, so I came back after high school, I returned to my normal program of going to church and my groups, the Legion of Mary, you know, praying the rosary, small Christian communities, and along that way, I came across this nun who was now in Beige. And... It rekindled my my call. No, mm-hmm. it, it renewed me. It renewed my desire to be like her. And, and and actually, I didn't see the habit as much as I saw the veil. Ah. I think I was very much fascinated by the veil than the habit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I think that's when it, it came back. Actually, mm. yeah,
0: yeah, it is remarkable sometimes, I think, in terms of vocations and discernments that sometimes things can go dormant for a while or or God is patient and waits until we're ready. God sometimes is ready to call us, but we're not ready in an interior sense to <laughs> accept the fullness of what that, that call means. But when we are, that God has, has been waiting there and sometimes puts new people in our lives or new opportunities to to respond in a new way.
1: Definitely, yes.
0: And then as you found out more about the Little Sisters of St. Francis of Assisi, what was it about their charism that continued to draw you in?
1: Yeah, you know know what, Dan? When I entered the Institute, I was very innocent. Mm -hmm. And I think God just calls you the way you are so that he teaches you because sometimes if God opens you know the call that is before you I'm sure he knows that you're not going to it so one thing I didn't know was I said earlier that this is a Franciscan order you know we mm-hmm. can't learn about you know spiritualities like these are Franciscans Dominicans these are Marians when I was in the call already. Mm. And so I came to learn about the, even like the founder and, you know, what the sisters do. I, I was very innocent. I thought these women are just like prayerful. They just go to, to the chapel. They only say the rosary. They only they only do spiritual things. I never knew sisters can go to the garden, They can, you know, go to hard animals, they can do other things.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they're they're real people.
1: Yeah, I didn't know all about that. So when I entered is when we we began learning about the charism, which was to love and to serve God and his people in the society today which means it is attending to the marginalized. And that's why we have orphanages, we have homes. We also attend to people in in schools. I mean, we are teachers, we are nurses, and we have doctors. It's kind of, you know, an all-round kind of a charism, such that you will not miss, uh, if you want, like, a tailor, you want a secretary you'll find in the Little Sisters of St. Francis. And that's what our mother foundries really wanted us to do, to love the people of God and to serve them.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as you grew into an understanding of the order and the different apostolates that was a part of, which, which of those stood out to you as you came to know your own gifts and talents to think. Ah, oh, this is this is the particular area where I think I might be called to serve with the sisters.
1: Yeah, that's a very good question, and it really reminds me a lot. I it, it's really funny that even as I was growing up, I never knew what I wanted to do.
0: huh. <laughs> it's a common experience for a, a lot of people. Sometimes yeah. <laughs> we discover it as we go.
1: Yes. And so when I'm in this order, you know, they well they ask, well, what would you like to do after you take your vows and all that? And so what came to my mind was actually teaching. And I said, hmm. Well, I want to be a teacher, I want to teach. Okay, they don't ask what do you want to teach, unfortunately, because they know teaching is you know teaching in grade school or, or high school.
2: Yeah.
1: And so I just say teaching and good enough after I I did my first profession they took me for a teaching course so I am a, a trained teacher
2: mm-hmm.
1: but then I had never thought of teaching theology or doing theology
0: so you actually were able to teach for some time in Kenya before continuing on with further studies
1: yes i did teach not long actually like i taught like for Six months,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then that—that uh, uh, that was like teaching in 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 grade school. So after that, I think my superior general had something else had to do theology.
0: Okay, okay, then that grew into that. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk about your journey here to Notre Dame and theology, but just so I don't lose the the timing of all this, so what is the length of formation for? nuns in your order, and what were some of the steps that you took to get to the point of of final vows?
1: Yeah, that's very important. So like I've said, just like sister told me, you have to apply, and that's the first thing actually. Well, you have to complete your high school, and then that's what I did, I completed, and I passed well, and I applied to become a nun. And then I was invited to a seminar and in this seminar, we were like, many of us, many of us. And they only needed about 10 people. And so I was among the 10. I joined later and I was, I went through the candidacy stage, which is uh, the first stage, they orient you into prayer. You know, they teach you literally everything because they assume that we are new to religious life they teach mm. you how to speak the rosary they teach you how to even read the bible they teach you how to be creative uh not only in prayer but even outside you know if you are cooking an egg be creative in adding something like spices if you want to prepare tea you know you can make tea in several ways you can add in tea leaves while you're cooking it or you can uh, just boil milk and water aside like that. So they teach you literally everything in the candidacy stage. But you also have to go to classes where we learn about the charism. They have a syllabus of their own. And then I went to postulancy, which is uh, closely related to candidacy, it's just a step ahead.
2: But mm-hmm.
1: basically, you're learning the same things. Then in postulancy, they orient you to the outside world. What what do I mean by that? You can go to a nearby church to teach catechesis. You can go to a nearby school and teach astral education to kids. You can go to a choir and join the members of the choir in singing. And that's what we did. Basically I did a sacristan in, in the parish. That was my 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 appointment so after that, you have two years of novitiate. The first year is canonical year. By canonical year, uh, we were asked to to be the mothers of the home, basically to keep the home, you know, when others are on apostolate they come back, they have to find food, they have to find warm water for shower. They, we need to be home to welcome visitors. So we are basically working within and we are not out. That's opposite to... A senior novices, uh, which is now you are out completely. Mm-hmm. Go even to communities to live with other sisters, just to practice the way you will live the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, which are the vows you take on um, on the profession day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and so I was posted to a place called subukia in Nakuru Diocese in Kenya. Where I did my my pastoral, or uh, three months, just before I got back to to do my final vows. So those are three, the four stages that you go through, and along the way you have sisters assisting you, spiritual directors guiding you here and there, so that you are fully oriented into becoming a nun. And and it's a, it's kind of an integrated study. It's not just spirituality. It's not just mm-hmm. secular. It's not just one part of life. It's emotional. It's intellectual. It's social. It's everything to do with, with life, actually.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you told us that way back when, when you first saw the sisters in in the mass and had this first inkling of an attraction to this vocation that your mom... Your mother slowed you down a bit and said you know there's there's a lot between now and then, but I'm curious to know, as this continued on and you're going through these stages of formation, hmm. what were some of the reactions of family and friends that you were going through with this, that you were going that you were continuing on this life and and really living this life of a religious sister?
1: Yeah, oh my, I say gone." <laughs> <laughs> What a nice question. Huh? You remind me a lot of things that I've never thought about. <laughs> so actually, Dan, my parents were not for it. Okay. They weren't for it, really. You know, being a first girl in Africa, wanted to get married because any girl who has studied to high school, that is a good resource for wealth. And so I was the first girl. I went to a good school. I have passed very well my exam. What was next? To get married and make my parents so wealthy. Unfortunately
0: God had other plans. Yes.
1: <laughs> hey, someone who wants to go to nunnery where there is no dowry, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, they never supported me until I I joined. I was living with my dad. I remember that my dad used to work in the city. My mom used to live in the countryside. And, and that's the way it is so that he works and gets some money for, for the family.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I was staying with my dad and the first day I told him was like, no, I don't have to go. No, we don't have money. And that is it. So that was during the, 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 the conference, the workshop. So I I talked to my friends. I was with in the choir practices, you know, in small small Christian communities, the groups, and they contributed some money for me. I bought whatever I needed, they gave me transport and I went. I came back, I was admitted, I told my dad, and believe you me, miracles do happen. Believe me, my dad was excited. Hmm. <laughs> and he He literally did every shopping for me and uh, escorted me to uh, the formation house. My mom to my Christian community, they prayed for me and they gave me their blessings.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that each vocational journey is unique. And sometimes you do have the kind of cheerleaders, for lack of a better term, of people who really see something in you and see what God's doing even before you can see that yourself but it's not always it's it's not always the case that, that the parents are those people because yeah. it sounds like there's you know some complicating factors in terms of societal expectations and I think as a parent myself sometimes you have hopes and dreams aspirations for your children that they may or may not share or God may right. not may not have and that that can be a hard, Aspect of of parenthood is is accepting God's will not only for my own life but for my child as well. But it sounds like they came to a a better understanding and an appreciation for your vocation later on in the process.
1: Absolutely, that's really dramatic. You know, I thank God. I've seen really God since my childhood. Seen the hand of God working in me. I don't take anything for granted. It's it's a long story.
0: Yeah, we're, we're happy to share some of it with our listeners here. Yeah. So then give us a sense, if you would, of how you, you mentioned that you taught for about six months and then your superior general had other plans. Did that lead into graduate st- studies in theology and eventually coming to Notre Dame?
1: Absolutely done. I had no idea. I had nothing to do with theology. I had nothing completely. But my superior general was a professor of theology, systematics theology.
2: Mm.
1: And uh, she used to teach at Kenyatta University in Kenya. And one day, she she comes on canonical visitation, which means a superior general visiting her her sisters in convents, you know? From one convent to another, meeting sisters one on one. And such like things. So this time was in, in my convent. And this was a school convent. I was really flourishing in the school, Dan.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I was a poet. I had uh, brought the school up, you know, in poetry, both in English and Swahili, you No know, poems. Uh, in drama festivals, our school was really shining. So I was doing well in teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so she comes and she... She makes a comment, she says, there are many scholarships in theology, but we do not have people who want to do theology. Hmm. And I say, what? By that time, I really don't, uh, don't have anything to do with theology. But I tell her, can I try? And she told me, oh, sure. You can go to Catholic University and look for an, uh, an admission. They said, are you serious? She said, well, yeah, you can go tomorrow. Here is the, the, the transport.
0: <laughs> a quick turnaround. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and the other sisters are looking at me and say, are you sick? You're going for theology? Really? Where are you going to teach? You want to be a formator, Or teach in the seminary or what? I said, well, let me go and try what this thing is. So I went to Kwe Really, I got admission, and I joined the, the undergraduate program there. And uh, I did my, my BA in Theology. So this is to show that our formation does not offer any uh, BA, you know what I mean? Uh Yeah, it's just, it's a formation house. And canonically, the canon law states that it should be basically spiritual matters in the formation house. Mm. So my BA begins at the Catholic University. And uh, towards the end, here comes my superior general again. She said, would you like to apply for master's uh, in Notre Dame in the U.S.? Then I asked her. You mean U.S., United States?
0: or <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there another that you might be referencing? or <laughs> Yeah.
1: And I'm like, U.S., are you confusing it, South Africa?
0: Because <laughs> it was, just to clarify for my understanding, it was a Catholic university in Kenya yes. where you were getting your B.A. Yeah. But then it's not only continued studies and a master's degree, but now in a foreign country.
1: Yeah. So no, here now my, my my spirit general asks me to. I was finishing that. Huh? It was uh, the spring of uh, 2016.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So w- I was to finish then, but she tells me to apply before then, so that I join this the fall of 2016. So I followed what she said. I applied and I kept my hands crossed. <laughs> I told God you have never put a desire in me to go anywhere apart from East Africa. Mm-hmm. Here is the opportunity. You have to grant it, dear Lord. <laughs> and the Lord granted it.
0: <laughs> Wonderful.
1: And He gave it me, He gave me this opportunity. So I came here for my MTS and subsequent PhD.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So was that your first time in the United States when you started with your master's studies?
1: Yes, my first time out of East Africa.
0: Okay. So what has that experience been like? Now you were a religious sister at that point, and in coming to the U.S., what have, what have been some of the important experiences that you've had while here?
1: One of the statements I give people is that I landed on on loam soil. You know, there are types of soil. We have clay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I landed on loam soil, really. A soil where you put a seed and the seed germinates and grows. I found great friends right from arriving and putting my feet on this campus. Find two ladies, I think one just passed the other year. She was Judy. I think uh, she's a mother to one of staff members here, mm-hmm. and another one was Mary. Uh, she's right now in in Washington DC. They took me as their daughter.
2: Mm.
1: They did everything for me. They oriented me to everything. They bought books for me. They helped me to because it was a new culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It was a new place, and. It was sort of a culture shock, you know, to arrive and everything is neat, clean. And I was just surprised, you know, why Africa is lagging behind. (laughs) I was amazed, you know, by the way this place was. And so I have really experienced um, a good life, even with uh, my professors in class, they are listening they know English is not my first language. They they try to, to understand me as much as they can. Mm-hmm. And something that is very important to me on this campus is the, the sacred places.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I discovered that almost every hall has a chapel. And then we have the basilica. And then we have the grotto. I think these are... Just signs of Catholicism and they have given me hope. They have sustained my faith deeply
2: mm.
1: and into me being hired as a, an assistant in the sacristy and people are not discriminating, you know, who are willing to talk to me. They are willing, sister, we like your habit. They, they have helped me really keep on my habit. Mm-hmm. They, they have strengthened my faith in, in the fact that they have made me know that I took the right, the right way. I responded to God's call, even though it's not yet final, you know. Sure. But but at the moment, uh, people here are really giving me strength in in what I'm doing, and I just hope that I'll not I'll not scandalize anyone. That's my prayer. <laughs>
0: I'm not too worried about it, sister. You're, <laughs> you're, a, you're a blessing to to our campus as well. We're really pleased to have you. Thank you. One thing I'm interested in is you mentioned that you, you never thought about studying theology, but then you did your undergraduate and master's degree and now under the PhD. So you must have found that you liked it at some point. So <laughs> how did that passion develop in you and, and lead you to you know, your current direction and what you're studying?
1: Yeah, it was a real time from what I've ever thought of doing. But when I entered into, uh, I joined uh, the Catholic University of Eastern Africa in Kenya. I think also, you know, the the way the professors approached the study of theology and philosophy. I began with philosophy sure. before I did theology. So it was like, you have to do philosophy for you to understand to understand theology. And I got myself into learning more than I had even studied in in the formation. I discovered that the many topics we were doing in uh, in theology were so deep and uh, pertinent to living a Christian life. For instance, courses about spirituality of people like Saint Benedict, people like St. Francis, people like uh, uh, major saints, you know, mystics who who developed mystical theology and all Mm. that. I I found it so profound um, in my undergraduate studies and I appreciated that. And it's from there that I discovered that God was calling me into doing or rather knowing him deeper through my studies of theology. And even as I study, it's not that I am looking forward to earning money or doing what. What I tell myself is, I am developing myself uh, to relate better with God hmm. and with his people. That's what, to me, theology is. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if if I don't really deepen that relationship with God, which I do by reading this articles, books, and what, I don't think I'll be able to teach it. So the first thing is to study it, to develop my relationship with him, and then with others. Then I can teach it to others.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a beautiful sentiment. I think sometimes a danger in studying theology is it can sometimes just become another academic discipline or just something that's purely intellectual. But it's important to remember that these are matters of both the mind and the heart and that understanding the depth and the breadth and the variety of tremendous thinkers and saints and holy people that have come through the church. I mean, it really inspires us and deepens our faith, even as we do study these very deep mysteries.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So how many more years uh, possibly do you have until c- completing your PhD?
1: I have three to four years ahead of me. Probably hoping to finish my coursework and uh, have my candidacy exams, do well in those, and then as our uh, program dictates. That's when you begin. You begin writing, and I, I intend to do an ethnographic study, which means I'll be out of the country. I'll be in Kenya, where my study is based, mm-hmm. doing my ethnographic study. God willing, we pray that Corona gets out of our way.
0: Yes, we are all living in the in the challenges and the uncertainty that that is there. So we will join you in in prayers for that thank you what do you think you would hope to do or is there some is there some sense of expectation from your religious order about what you might do as you complete your studies
1: yeah that's that's a a very good question actually my program really uh, asked that question and was like so after after doctorate, what next? Uh, and the best answer we can give is go back and teach our people faith. Mm. And go back and live that faith so that they learn from you. Go back and be a model uh, for others. In our case, we I am a woman religious. And it, 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 because I have the vow of obedience, I think I will depend on my superior general. And whatever she, she she tells me to do, I am doing doctoral studies. But this does not mean that you as a woman religious, you just apply for a job on your own and sure. uh, yeah, and put yourself in a school and then and then what? I mean, where is your vow of obedience? Mm-hmm. So I I am open to what my superior general is saying. If she tells me that ideal you have to go and teach the grade school well uh, that's what i'm gonna do Mm -hmm. that's what i'm gonna do i i am i am on on vows Uh, Mm -hmm. unless i want to change my vocation right now i'm in the hands of of the institute and uh, Mm -hmm. i am bound to do what the institute wants me to do
0: yeah i think that is There's both beauty and challenge in taking vows like that. I imagine a number of years of temporary vows, and then you get to the point of final vows, but we don't always have an understanding of what those vows will ask of us or what they'll give to us. And the following of one's vows is a sure path to holiness, one of the main themes of the podcast. So how have you experienced being able to live your vows or seen others live their vows well in times when the vows are challenging and life-giving as well?
1: Well, I think understanding what the vows are is very important. And uh, the the three vows, for the sake of those who may not know what vows are, you know, so the the vow of poverty is actually intended for us to share things in common, uh, things like, uh, I don't own the habit I have. Mm. Uh, you must understand that we are given like maybe two to three habits. Huh? And if my neighbor, my sister wants to come and use it, she comes. That's mm. the habit. So it's it's a vow that helps us to share. And if we can share within the community, then it's easier even to share our poverty with the people outside. What do I mean? I mean my time. Instead mm-hmm. of sleeping, I have to go out and teach catechesis. You know, I'm sharing my poverty with with the people outside. So it doesn't mean like uh, material lack, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It doesn't mean like you, you, you work with uh, tattered clothes or in our case like you walk without shoes or Mm -hmm. no we we need we need to be dressed up Uh, we need we need uh, a dress code that is able to attract girls to to the to the institute so we dress Mm -hmm. well we do we do dress well and then the vow of obedience of course you know obeying the superiors and Obeying people like Dan, who asked me to come
0: and... <laughs> I don't think you can lump me into that, no. <laughs> 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 I kindly requested, but I, I appreciate your your coming on. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it speaks to obedience, saying yes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like what I, I just shared before, you've done your PhD, but you've been asked to go and teach in grade school you have to obey, hmm. and then chastity is the vow to love, we love everyone, we don't discriminate, mm-hmm. we love both men and women, we work with both men and women in schools, in hospitals, so we do not discriminate people based on colour, and race, and nationality, we work with everyone, we mm. meet them with everyone, so those are the three vows. They are challenging if one, you do not pray. And the basic thing that makes women religious live their vows is the life of prayer.
2: Mm.
1: Because these are not vows that you, you, they're not utopian, they're not arbitrary. They are vows that you're consciously taking, knowing that you're going into a life of prayer. And so you have to commit your vows to God, because you're living this life for God. And that's one thing, Uh, if if you keep constantly praying the Holy Rosary, going to Mass, we have evening prayer, Mm -hmm. we say the Divine Mercy, Uh, we have personal prayers, we have retreats, we have recollections, we go for confessions. Those are things that help us leave all these vows. Mm. Other than that, it's not easy to leave the vows Mm. that I've just mentioned. So you need prayer. Secondly, you need spiritual direction. Someone to guide you and tell you, you have to do this, you have to move like this. If you are a student, get time to pray. If you are what you have, you know. And and we get those from our spirit generals or other sisters or the clergy or married people, you know, it depends. And people have assisted that to leave to leave those vows.
0: Yeah, thank you for. For sharing that. And I think that's, although not many of those who would be listening are in religious life, I think that's sound advice for all as we continue to seek our own vocations and and try to live those out, that that closest to God in prayer helps us through the challenges. And obviously, we're living a particularly unique global challenge at this time
2: yeah. with the
0: spread of coronavirus and COVID-19. yeah. And sometimes we leave ourselves wondering how these things can happen. And and obviously, compassion goes out to those suffering not only from this, but a number of other uh, maladies that are just part of the human existence. So how do you think it's best for us to to sustain our faith during this time, even for those who uh, may want to pray, may want to go to Mass or to partake in the sacraments, but physically cannot right now?
1: I think, I must say, uh, this usual statement, that God understands. Mm. But I would say, uh, let, let's also take the opportunity, to think about uh, the preventive measures that that are being given to us, actually done. I have uh, taken it seriously, you know, reflected mm-hmm. uh, theologically on what, these preventive measures can mean for a Christian, for instance, the, the, the measure of washing hands. I have taken it myself to understand it as in the lens of the, uh, the Sacraments of Initiation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: All, all this, uh, The Sacrament of Reconciliation and Baptism takes away our, our sins. It's similar to washing hands uh, so that we avoid the spread of the virus. And I've deeply reflected on these things. When we look at the measure of uh, self-isolation or stay at home, to me, they are calling us to prayer, really. Hmm. Uh, I mean, what is home? Staying at home, you know? what is Prayer is associated with a place, a sacred place. And whenever we want to pray, Dan, we go to the church. Which means right now, our churches should be our homes. Which means we need to pray in our homes. We need to convert those homes into places of prayer. And we know very well that we are not allowed to go out. We are not allowed to receive the sacraments. We are not allowed to associate with uh, spiritual directors and all that. Mm-hmm. What is the best thing to do? Jesus says, go to your secret place and kneel down and pray to God. Because I think saying a prayer is space bound. You know, it's, it's not, it's not just that you need just to go to the church. You can create space and pray and even the secret of your heart. As we are home, staying home, praying for the end of these menace, praying for our friends, praying for our Notre Dame community, our faculty, staff, and the students, we should do that even at this time that we have been asked to stay home. I think that is a positive thing mm-hmm. and a theological way of looking at this disease. And when you look at the issue of self-isolating, why are we doing that? We want to avoid the spread. And why are we avoiding the spread? Because we want to wish well our neighbor, which means we are caring, we want to care for people so that after all this, after we have washed our hands, our sins, we have prayed, we come together and celebrate. And I'm very sure and I'm hopeful that we shall win
0: soon and sooner. Yeah, I kind of oscillate myself between Lord you know take this from us and then thinking about Lord what are you what are you trying to teach us now mm. in in this in this moment of suffering and you know yeah. at the begin towards the beginning of the podcast you you mentioned these these small Christian communities as yeah. instrumental in your own vocation. And in a way our, our communities have gotten very small because it's our families and the people we live with yeah. immediately. But God is moving in those in those spaces and with those people. And so I think you've reminded us of yeah. that very well. Yeah. Well, Sister, I just want to thank you for your time and joining us remotely for yeah. this podcast. Thank you for the witness that you give to us as a religious sister in the church and the contributions that you are making here at Notre Dame and know of our prayers for your continued success there and your continued unfolding of your vocation as as it develops over time that uh, God would be with you and and guide you in all those things.
1: Thank you, Dan.
0: Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indy podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. If you would like to receive notification of future episodes of this podcast, you're always welcome to subscribe with any podcasting service of your choice, as well as to sign up for our daily gospel reflection at Faith. .nd.edu/signup Until next time, know of our sincere prayers for you and your loved ones and thank you for being with us.